Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Thursday, September 12th, and we're talking about the defense industry. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Molly Fool contributor Lou Whiteman via Skype. How's it going, Lou? I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing well. It's been uh, it's been since June since we've had you on the show. A lot of things so, yeah. going on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Always, always a lot of things going on in the stock market. Uh, stock market these days. You know, one tweet can send the market up or down. But we have seen uh, some signs of some slowing, particularly in the industrial market over the past year and a half or so. So auto sales in China have been in decline for 14 of the past 15 months, which has caused some trickle-down issues in Germany. We've seen slowing capital investment in the U.S., uh, machinery and trade uh, due to trade war and the slowing economy. And then we're layering this WeWork IPO, maybe failed IPO. Uh, on top of this, uh, what have you been following in the market most closely these past few months? Well, as you said, you know, we, we've seen warning signs internationally and in, in the industrials for a while now, and it is starting to creep into the United States. Uh, a lot of these industrials, they are selling big ticket goods. They, you know, goods that 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 need to be planned. And as uncertainty grows, you see at least a slowdown. And uh, I think that's what we're facing. If you look back at second quarter earnings, kind of all across the board, uh, largely the companies did pretty well, but the guidance was the issue. And what that is, is, you know, whether or not this, this materializes as a slowdown remains to be seen. But with the trade uncertainty, with the uh, with so much going on domestically right now, it's really hard to plan, and that usually leads to a slowdown. And I, I, I think that's the worrisome sign right now for the at least domestically. Yeah, I mean, you've seen steel producers are one example of an industry that seems to have been caught off guard. You had maybe a year or so ago, folks talking about really ramping up production, and now you've got uh, the idea of maybe we need to cut production. Uh, you know, a lot of uncertainty right now uh, when it comes to what the industrial markets are going to look like going forward, as you mentioned. Do you have a bold prediction of what uh, we might see uh, coming up? Obviously, yeah. hard to predict. Yeah, well, sure, and 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 let's go deeper too, because you know it's it's a full lowercase f, fool's errand to uh, try and predict a recession. But you know, we're seeing for old people like me, uh, we're seeing a lot of things that at least rhyme with the end of cycles. Uh, a lot of activist activity, a lot of corporate splits. Usually, you see these industrial companies; they start splitting up when they're running out of growth. It's 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 Plan B when you can't produce top line, bottom line growth. So, you know, I mean, I, I I hate to call it, maybe we'll go on for a couple more years, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking in September of next year, where we're trying to gauge how deep the slowdown will go and um, and and not how long the, the how much more the bull market can go. But uh, who knows? Yeah. Uh, bold prediction. We, you know, we're talking about slowing industrials. Uh, these are businesses with steady cash flow, easy to understand. Uh, just the sort of thing that Warren Buffett and his $120 billion in cash loves to find. Uh, he's complained about valuations. If we're right, then we might see valuations coming down. I really think we're going to see Berkshire put money to work in a big way before the end of the year. I think maybe in the industrials, uh, I'd hate to pick a company. Um, you know, I, I for me, for my money, the best deal he's ever done was the precision cast parts deal, the aerospace deal he did. That was just a terrific company. I wonder if he may go back there, something like a Stanley Black and Decker, or um, you know, maybe another industrial. I, I think a one well known in Fulham, uh, Middleby. 
I, I think Warren Buffett's going to do something big. I think it might be an industrial company because I think some of the valuations are coming back to him, and I think he's itching to do something. Yeah, so there you go. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a, that's a great pick. It, like, like you, I'm not super comfortable running, rushing out here and protecting a recession or anything like that. But I will say, uh, with interest rates uh, beginning to fall or continuing to fall, um, and valuations appearing to come down, I think companies like Brookfield Asset Management, Warren Buffett, these types of companies that have permanent capital on hand to invest when prices become attractive, and that have a track record of squeezing out uh, uh, cash flows uh, uh, from these businesses, I think are going to be really attractively placed uh, as we uh, as we move into the next year and a half or so. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll let, see. Yeah, <laughs> it's all always always some uh, some level of uncertainty here in the market, and uh, you know, particularly these days. Um, we, we've just guaranteed a huge upsurge yes. over the next few months, right? Yeah, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. Okay, Lou, let's move on into our main topic today. Uh, and I maybe have undersold it off the top of the show. I said we're going to talk about the defense industry, but we're talking about Terminators, Lou. We're talking about fully autonomous weapons. Can you kind of give us an overview of where we're at as far as the early stages of this industry and how we got here? Sure, sure. So, so drones are well known. We've been using drones. I think the first use of drones in combat was February 2002 in Afghanistan. Uh, It goes back further. The Navy was actually experimenting with what they called air torpedoes uh, back in World War One. But, uh, you know, the military and especially the Air Force over the last almost two decades are growing increasingly comfortable with drones that take on special missions, very specific missions, and usually with a controller back uh, somewhere with a joystick not far away. These are used largely for reconnaissance. We've seen in recent years, they, they, a lot of them are shooting missiles. It's a it's unmanned, so we're moving in that direction, but it isn't really the stuff of Terminator. Uh, the next step is to get on towards some of this stuff, the, 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 the stuff of uh, science fiction. Uh, we're not there yet, but we are getting a lot closer than I think people realize. Right, the, the latest kind of cutting edge or the latest, I guess, defense programs are around this called loyal wingman programs or these these loyal wingman drones. Lou, can you tell us mm-hmm. what, what what are these aircraft and what are they designed to do? So imagine uh, going into battle with a F-35 alongside a smaller version of the F-35 almost it uh, without a pilot. The idea is uh, especially, b- believe it or not, the Pentagon is budget con- conscious despite all the money they spend, they're trying to get the most bang for their buck. And the idea, if you could put four or five autonomous drones, or at least semi-autonomous drones, with firepower, they could go in, it's it's extra firepower, it's basically extra missile capacity for any of these F-35s. Also, in uh, even with the F-35's stealth technology, missile defense and, uh, and air Defense against airplanes is getting more sophisticated. Uh, there's a hope if you can throw one plane and 20 drones at a system, you can confuse a system, you can overwhelm the system, and actually ensure or help help ensure the safety of the piloted aircraft. Um, these are systems that work in tandem with a piloted aircraft. They're moving towards AI. It's really impressive the things they can do on their own. It's not quite that you're sending a, a plane out on their own, but it's a huge step from the drones that are just piloted by a joystick back uh, 100 miles away. And it's, it's, it's really interesting how close we are. So are these are these wingman drones? Are they controlled by the 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 fighter pilot that is you know, I guess the the pilot that's traveling with the drones? Or are they controlled back home? Are they controlled on their own? How, how do these all talk to each other and work together? 
Right now, the key is they work together. It's all working in tandem. And that's, and, and, you know, part of this process is, is writing the software and figuring out exactly what they will do. We're still in the proof of concept, but the idea of it would be that they are programmed from afar and, and reacting on the fly with the, with the plane, uh, with the fighter plane. So it's, it's, it's kind of fuzzy right now, exactly. They're not just going to be sent off on their own to find a target and kill it. Uh, they are going to have some pre-mission download. And then the idea, though, the AI comes in is to be able to react in real time with the plane, with, with, with whoever they're accompanying and to, uh, to, to, to deal, with, deal with threats as they come up. Yeah, it really, really augments uh, you know, the firepower of, of the pilot himself and those sorts of things. What, uh, you know, obviously, we, we'll probably have some major defense contractors in play here. Who are, who are the main companies that are operating in this loyal wingman space, and you know, how have they uh, performed so far? So, so the big company is a new name for defense. It's, uh, it, it's been around a while. Uh, Kratos is the name of the company. They, if this is a, in a kind of odd company, they, back, uh, back in the day, they were a wireless infrastructure company. Over time, they used M&A to pivot to defense. They've been in a lot of different defense businesses, some more successful than others, but they, they bought and sold and they now have a core business a lot of their revenue coming in is from what I'd call dumb drones. And these are these are target practice drones that, uh, you know, will just shoot up to give uh, the Navy practice shooting missiles down. But they're jet powered, they're fast, and uh, they've used what they've learned with these drones to build uh, really the, the the front runner in the, in the loyal wingman concept, something that's uh, a plane that is actually being tested by the Air Force right now that looks really promising. And uh, so they're big there. Their, their nearest competition would be Boeing, which of course is a very big name. Uh, Boeing just uh, in the last six months has announced their own version of a wingman. They're doing it in Australia, which uh, is gonna be interesting because they're dealing with the Australians a little closer right now than the United States. There could be maybe some issues bringing that back into the United States. It does open Boeing up to export the plane a lot easier than a U.S.-based plane. So there's advantages there. Uh, Boeing is behind Kratos, so if Kratos can do what they set out to do, they're going to get there first. But um, this is this is AI is something that all of the big contractors are working on, and you're you're only going to see more announcements. Yeah, and just to illustrate, you, you talked about the cash savings from this program. A stat that that you had called out to me is this this Valkyrie. Uh, uh, loyal wingman airplane that's being developed by Kratos would sell for around two to three million dollars versus eighty million dollars plus for an F F thirty five. So obviously a massively uh, reduced bill when it comes to the military. Uh, how big could this market potentially be, Lou? I mean, do, any idea uh, of how big the opportunity is for Kratos and others in this in this little wingman program? Sure, sure. And for now, we should emphasize the plus on that eighty million dollars for the uh, for, for the F thirty five. That's um. That's like that's the number the car dealer will give you when you come in to get a car. Right, right. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, initially we're talking. Um, I think Kratos would like to see an order for a hundred drones or something. Doesn't sound like a lot, but this is a company that had 2018 sales of uh, just north of 600 million dollars. So it is it is me needle moving for them. Over time, I think the market could be a lot bigger. We're not going to replace the F-35, and it's, but uh, we, I, I do believe that if this goes as planned, we are going to see these in the thousands and uh, not in the hundreds with the Air Force. And um, it, 
in a relatively short amount of time, perhaps, if, if, if they work as planned. Which would obviously be, you know, incredible for keeping more people safe uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, augmenting, you know, the fewer people that have to put themselves at risk when it comes to, to military combat. Uh, you know, the Air Force has a lot of programs at, at work when it comes to drones, but they're not alone when it comes to uh, development of autonomous programs. The Navy is also developing uh, some uh, undersea and, uh, and, and ships that operate autonomously. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Lou? Sure, sure. The Navy may be where the where the coolest stuff is going on right now. I mean, we're, we're pretty accustomed to drones. The Navy has been watching what the Air Force has been able to do with drones uh, with Envy for a while now. Uh, you know, in, in the battle for budgets, uh, we like, I mean, especially with what I do and watching the airspace companies, I'm focused on the price tags for the equipment, uh, especially with these huge naval ships. A lot of the expense for the Navy is the personnel that goes into operating those ships. Uh, that is a real drag on the the total spend for equipment they can buy, both because they have existing payroll to make and they have to budget thousands of additional payrolls for every new ship they bring in for some of these bigger ships. Uh, the solution, at least in part, is autonomous or more autonomous ships, and the Navy is making incredible progress there. Uh, they've, uh, they're working with, again, we're going to say the name Boeing, but they're working on, with Boeing on a large undersea vessel. I mean, ma- imagine basically a big sub. They call it the Orca. Uh, it's going to be a special use vessel. It's not going to replace our subs, but for reconnaissance, for patrolling areas, for monitoring the open sea. And with um, with the size that they can put some sophisticated equipment in there, that is coming with a, they're going to have very specific missions. They'll probably be monitored, but uh, I think that's a lot closer than people realize. On the surface, a company called Latos, that's best known as a government IT company, they have been working with the Navy. They just sailed a ship from San Diego to Hawaii and back without intervention. Uh, that's a surface ship. It's it, it's a smaller ship for a warship. But uh, just to give some idea of some of the stuff that's being looked at right now, there's going to be a lot of opportunity for the contractors both to build the boats and to build the brains of it. We're, we're slowly seeing the evolution in the defense industry from just being metal benders to being programmers and being systems integrators. Uh, as we know from other industries, that tends to be a higher margin business. And that's weird, just on the tip of the iceberg with some of this stuff. And uh, the Navy Autonomous is a great example of where you can see that. Sure. When it comes to these autonomous programs as well, we talk about reducing prices and the idea that, hey, maybe we can reposition some of our spend to get more bang for our buck. Uh, as we see more upswing in autonomous programs with the Navy. Are there any companies you think are particular are at particular risk of maybe losing some business or losing some opportunities that they may have had in the past? Well, the two big shipbuilders are uh, Huntington Ingalls, and that's all they do. So they are always at risk to changing trends in the Navy. And then General Dynamics has a very large naval business. They're both involved here. Huntington Ingalls is the contractor that's doing the metal bending for this Boeing Orca. Um, there's revenue in there. Again, the, the worry is, is that you don't want to be the metal bender in a digital world. Um, you know, General Dynamics, we haven't mentioned that, but they have a huge autonomous program themselves. Uh, just this week, I saw they announced, uh, I think it's the Bluefin 12, which is a small torpedo-sized boat. So they're all working on this, but they're definitely... I mean, I wouldn't hit the panic button. Uh, for now, Huntington Ingalls is our sole nuclear manufacturer for our carriers and our subs. 
the, the nuclear power plants, uh, those aren't going away anytime soon. So the business isn't going to just evaporate. But I think we are at a point where we're seeing companies that you never thought of as hardware contractors slipping into the space or Boeing. It's only basically thought of as a uh, airplane maker doing a lot, using what they've learned with drones in, uh, underwater. Uh, there are shifts happening. There are subtle disruptions happening. And I think the the metal benders, the Huntington Ingalls, the uh, General Dynamics, they do have to be monitoring this and watching this. And, and I think they are, but there's still risk there. Yeah, it's one of those technology touches every one of these industries. I mean, including including military, maybe very, very foremost. I mean, you talk about uh, autonomous cars, the very early days of that began with military research programs. So it's really, really right. important that uh, is the, the cutting edge there. Another area, you know, we've talked about uh, the Air Force, we've talked about the Navy. There's also upcoming programs when it comes to the Army uh, replacing the Shadow Drone that was first introduced in 2001. What can you tell us mm -hmm. about the new development when it comes to drones for our Army? <laughs> well, they, I mean, you, you hit on it, the Shadow 2001, and you can think of what's happened to your cell phone and your computer since then. Uh, this is a program that needs a refresh. Uh, the, the Army is working through it. Uh, Boeing was thought of as a favorite just because Boeing won a very similar Marine contract. Uh, the Army appears to be going in another direction. Textron is the incumbent here. Uh, Textron is still in the race. They're working, they're, they're going up against a small company that's partnered with Northrop Grumman, who's been another pioneer uh, with, with drone systems. Uh, this is going to be a big contract. We don't quite know yet what the Army wants to buy. If it's a one-for-one -one replacement, we're talking about $2 billion in revenue, which again, for Textron, a company maybe, I think people should think more of as a defense contractor, but I don't know if people necessarily see it that way. Uh, this is a very intriguing thing. It can really be a needle mover for them. And, um, you know, it, it, this also speaks to that, that, you know, a, a, a naval ship can go 50 years if it has to, and you can overhaul things. A lot of the, as we get more te technological, as we're more cutting edge, we're going to see shorter replacement cycles and hopefully more opportunities for these companies. Maybe not hopefully for the taxpayer, but hopefully for the companies. I mean, it, it, it is striking that, uh, you know, a military program like, you know, like the Shadow Drone can have been around for 18 years without an update. How optimistic are you, given the current system of how budgeting works for the military and those sorts of things, that we can be more dynamic uh, in, in kind of updating these, these systems in a, in a proactive way? I think we actually do a decent job of it. I mean, I, it, it, it could be a lot better, but uh, I, I think the shadow has been a good performer. One of, I, one of the reasons that it's taken so long, I, it, has a lot of, it has a lot of faults versus current technology. It's, it's big and cumbersome and loud, and you can't really, you know, be, the, the, the replacement will be a worthy replacement. But uh, I... I, I, the Army gets this, and across the Pentagon, I saw a quote not not long ago. Uh, Rear Admiral Casey Mouton saying, "We need we are buying rapidly here. We're moving fast because we need to." And uh, I think there is. It, it's never going to be fast enough, but a, a big a big portion of the Pentagon budget is R and D, is forward looking. That does go to the contractors, and it in, in incentivizes them to be looking. Uh, you know, 18 years is a long time, but then again, this was a decent product and we've had other priorities. 
I, I think the product cycles are going to get shorter. I think the development cycles and the procurement cycles need to get shorter. But I, I, I think that's there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of politics there. Uh, I think that's something that is front of mind. I think it's something that will slowly get better, but maybe never, never good enough in all cases. So one, one, one other thing from a policy point of view that I guess I'd be remiss if we didn't discuss when it comes to automating our military is just that ethical question of, of how far we want to go into allowing machines to make decisions to, to harm human beings without some kind of human uh, intermediary. When it comes to the growth of, of the automated military and the growth of this industry as a whole, how, how much of a modulation, I guess, on that growth do you think these ethical issues will be over time? It's a huge issue, without a doubt. Now, I think the best thought experiment on this, and it might have been something that you and I talked about uh, early in the summer when we were talking about the nuclear triad. Uh, up in, We are capable. We have the capabilities to try to put satellites up in space that could detect an inter, a, a ballistic missile launch, read what it is, and take it out before it gets off the ground. We could do that today. The issue is it would have to happen in a matter of seconds. It wouldn't happen with someone back in California telling it, yeah, you're right. What would happen if for some reason it sees a launch to the space station out of central Russia as a missile headed for Washington, D.C. and starts World War III? And that is the risk of autonomous. It's, it's a much smaller scale when you're talking about a loyal wingman drone and it might just take out you know, a dozen people or something and not start World War III, but it is every bit as real. And it is hard to imagine in the foreseeable future that we can solve that problem. We can work around that problem some, we can limit the use, we can have eyes in the air with uh, an F-35 pilot. Uh, I think we'll even get to the point where, you know, some things like if you can identify a tank in a in a hostile area, you shoot or maybe identify this tank versus that tank. I think we can get part the way there, but it's hard to imagine the sci-fi movie future where we're just sending our robots out to fight your robots. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, even if the technology can get there, it's hard to imagine the ethics getting there any, in, in, in any reasonable amount of time, or at least let's hope. Yeah, I, I guess if you think about it, we're 100 years on from World War One, where we kind of encountered as a society, we had to make decisions on how we wanted the rules we wanted warfare to be waged by. And I guess as we move 100 years into a new century where we've got autonomous warfare, we have to decide as a society, a global society, you know, where we want to draw the line when it comes to military conflict. We've had the UN Secretary General come out and, and comment on this, saying autonomous machines with the power and discretion to select targets and take lives without human involvement are politically unacceptable, morally repugnant, and should be prohibited by international law. We've got the Defense Department in the U.S. Ha has been developing some ethical principles to guide how we use this technology. We've had in private industry, Google and other companies, their, their employees push back on working with the military. This is something we're going to continue to have to navigate going forward. Uh, when you're investing in this space, Lou, how do you think about, I guess, these risks or these concerns in, in society and, and how that may affect these businesses moving forward? 
We are in such early days, and I think there is an inevitability of AI coming into the fence. As an investment, it doesn't worry me today. I think there is enough work to be done in areas uh, less lethal, non-lethal, we'll see, but there's enough work to be done, reconnaissance, uh, patrolling shipping lanes, uh, the wingman concept where you're just, even if you're over only overriding uh, air defense systems, we, we have 10, 20 years of growth and development and expansion of this, I think, before we elbow up against these issues. So as an investor, it doesn't worry me. Maybe as a human and as a citizen, all, I mean, I'm sitting there listening to you rattle off some of that and thinking all it takes is one rogue state. And so there's certainly things to think about, but I do think there's an, a technological in, in, inevitability and I think we're in early enough days that there is enough roles to fill that will be acceptable that I think for now there's there's a real runway for the as an investor. Yeah, we'll just have to see how, how things play out, Lou. Very exciting developing industry. As I mentioned earlier, it's quite possible that you know some of these innovations that are being developed in military technologies today could you know, make their way over into what we see uh, uh, from the consumer side, whether that's how we develop, you know, autonomous tracking so we can understand where these machines are in the environment or those sorts of things. Uh, regardless of whether, you know, this is a space you're comfortable investing in, there's a lot to l- learn from these opportunities. And Warfare is 100% going to continue down this track. Uh, and we'll have you on uh, to learn more about it. Lou, thanks so much for coming on. It's a pleasure. It's nice talking to you. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Dan Boyd for his work behind the glass. For Lou Whiteman, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on. 